Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, happy spring to you. Thanks again for being with us this morning at First Alliance Church at home. My name's Andrew. And we as a church, as Good Friday and Easter draws near, we are getting into some of the stories of Jesus' last moments before his death. And so thank you, Linda, for so uh, dramatically bringing God's word alive for us. Uh, If you're watching, I invite you to pray with me. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and that you would come for the renewal of worship and witness, that you would Take the words we've just heard and illumine our hearts and our minds to understand them, to enter into the story of Jesus and to encounter Jesus. And that through this encounter, we would not walk away the same as we are in this moment, but that you would change us by your word and spirit. We pray this all in Jesus's mighty name. Amen. What if you had eight hours to live? What if it was the last eight hours of your life? How would you want to spend it? Who would you spend it with? What would you want to do? Here's the scene. It's Passover time in Jerusalem, and the city is just swelling with Jewish pilgrims who have come to celebrate the feast. Uh, You can think about Nuit Nuit Blanche here in Toronto, or Carabana, or like when the Raptors won the NBA title. The, The city is buzzing. And Jesus has been there with his disciples and he's been teaching very publicly in the temple. And the time for his arrest, his trial, and his execution are drawing near. He is, in fact, in the last eight hours of his life. The clock is ticking. And the road we're on right now as the church towards Good Friday and Easter, it's a time where we are paying attention to these last moments of Jesus' life. And this morning, we're going to look at the first thing he does in the last eight hours of his life. And the first thing he does is he has a meal with his disciples. He has a meal with his closest followers. The Last Supper As you can see on your screen, Da Vinci's Last Supper is one of the most popular and well-known images depicting this scene. And even though I don't think Jesus and his disciples were sitting in a Roman-style building or sitting upright at European-style tables, the painting does capture some of the dynamics going on here. It wasn't a peaceful meal. The disciples are debating amongst one another, who is it that's going to betray Jesus? And they're also arguing about which one of them is the most important. And that makes verse 15 and what Jesus says there really striking. The the meal ends up turning into what sometimes our family meals turn into, really awkward situations. But Jesus says in verse 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus eagerly desired to eat this meal with his disciples. Why was he eagerly desiring it? Was was he hungry? Did he really desire the food and the nutrients or did he really desire the wine? Like us, was he starved for social interaction as we are in this pandemic time? I mean, 
Who wouldn't give an arm and a leg to just sit with your friends and family without masks, getting close and enjoying a good meal together? But those aren't Jesus's reasons for wanting to share this meal with his disciples. The reason he wanted to eagerly have this meal is because he wanted to give them a gift. He wanted to give them a gift. And this is a bit counterintuitive because in the last eight hours of your life, uh, I, for one, would probably be focused on getting, right? Like I want to get as much experience as I, as I can have. I want to uh, get that thing that I could never justify buying for myself, but now I can. But Jesus isn't like that. In the last eight hours of his life, he, he's focused on giving. He's focused on giving, and that is just true to who he is through and through. But the gift that he gives his disciples and to us, us trying to follow Jesus today in 2021, the gift he wants to give us isn't the meal itself. Rather, the gift is found in the meaning of the meal. So let's consider that, the meaning of the Passover meal As Jesus and his disciples would have grown up as Jewish boys, uh, they would have grown up year after year celebrating the Passover with their family and friends. They went to all the church services that would have gone along with this. They celebrated the Passover. We need to know what the Passover was. The Passover is a feast that celebrates how God way back in Israel's history, rescued God's people from slavery in Egypt. It was a commemoration, a remembrance of how God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And Exodus 12 verse 8 gives us some insight on the symbols used in the Passover. In Exodus 12 8, it says, the same night that God was going to deliver them, They are to eat the meat, that is the lamb, roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Now, the meat was the lamb that was sacrificed, and it had to be unblemished. It had to be a a perfect specimen for that sacrifice. The flatbread represented the fact that when God told his people to go, they didn't have time to wait for their dough to rise. They just had to bake it, get it, and go. And then the bitter herbs were representative of the bitter pain that they endured and the suffering that they endured as slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. And then finally, there's the blood. They were to take some of the blood from the lamb that they were roasting, and they were to paint it on their doorposts. Exodus 12 verse 13 explains, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, this is God talking, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence the name Passover. And no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the Passover was a symbolic celebration of divine deliverance. It was a celebration of their divine deliverance from tyranny. And the Passover lamb was sacrificed And the blood was painted over their doorposts to set God's people apart. The blood of the lamb caused God's judgment to pass over his people 
as he carried out his judgment on Egypt. And so Jesus is having this meal. It's a very familiar meal. His disciples are like, yeah, Jesus, we know what this is about. But Jesus is like, no, you don't. This is what it's about. And Jesus takes the meal and he reinterprets it for them. And he reinterprets it in light of what he's about to do in his death. Look at verses 19 and 20. And if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard these words so many times. So I want us to make a special effort here to try and cleanse ourselves of what we know about these words and try to hear them fresh, as if we were hearing them for the first time like Jesus' disciples were. Verses 19 and 20 say, And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant. It is the new relational deal in my blood, which is poured out for you. Can we just pause and appreciate what Jesus is saying? He's saying that the bread that they have and and the cup that is before them, one is his body and one is his blood. Like, what, Jesus? What do you mean by that? And what Jesus is doing is he's making a profound and life-altering claim about himself and what his work is. And what he is, in fact, saying is, I am the new lamb. I am the new Passover lamb. I am the sacrifice to end All sacrifices, my blood, just like the blood of the lamb painted on the lintel would cause God's judgment to pass over you. So my blood is what's going to atone for you. It's what's going to make God's judgment pass over you. And what I'm about to do in my dying and rising is going to be like what God did for Israel and bringing them out of Egypt. Only that whole story actually points to me. It's all about me. And the gift he's giving them in reinterpreting the Passover is actually himself. It's the gift of himself. So let's pause and consider, why does that matter to you and I? What difference does this gift make to us? We're going to notice two things. First, this gift frees us from tyranny. It frees us from tyranny the tyranny of sin. And second of all, it frees us for service and for love. Once I was standing in our kitchen, I think I was making dinner, and my son Eli walked in, and he's five years old. And it was really interesting because he walked in carrying one of his toys, and not just one of those junky dollar store toys, but one of his nice toys, And he walks in completely quiet. His head is bowed a bit and he looks really sad. And and I watch him as he comes up to the cupboard under the sink, opens the cupboard and puts his toy in the garbage bin. 
This was such strange behavior. I was like, Eli, what are you doing? Why are you putting your toy in the garbage? And and he looks at me with sad eyes and just quietly says, well, I I did something wrong, and so now I need to throw this away. (laughs) And I was like, what? Did we teach him that? I, I, I don't think so. But my five-year-old somehow knew that his wrongdoing had a cost. I was seeing moral psychology developing in this young five-year-old's mind. It was fascinating, but he could understand that what he had done created a cost that he had to pay. There needed to be, as we would say in theological language, atonement. Fascinating. And Let's admit it, as humans, we know that our wrongdoing creates a cost. And it creates a moral debt that actually needs to be paid. Justice needs to be satisfied. This is why religions of every culture and every age have some kind of sacrificial system where people can right their wrongs by offering a sacrifice. We need atonement. We need justice. And if if we don't uphold them, if we don't seek justice, life is thrown out of balance. We see this so clearly on the societal level when wrongs in society aren't addressed and atoned for, when justice is neglected, society spirals out of control. Think about it. Think about history. This is how genocides happen. Sin is left unaddressed and unatoned for. This is how the Holocaust happened. This is how the transatlantic slave trade happened, and our societies are still reeling in the aftermath of that horrendous institution. What happens in all of those cases is that ethnic hostility and racism were allowed to endure, unchecked and unrepented of, and we're still seeing the consequences of it today. We need atonement. We need justice. And without it, reconciliation is impossible. Whether we're talking reconciliation between people and other people, or person to person, or whether we're talking about reconciliation between God and humanity. And this is why the gift of Jesus, the new lamb, matters to you. It's because we all need divine deliverance from tyranny. We're not enslaved in Egypt, but we are enslaved to sin. That's the situation of the human race, and that is a deeper and more pervasive tyranny. I mean, sin is the problem underneath all the problems. And it's on that deeper level of the human heart that God has actually intervened to lead us out of the tyranny of sin. There is such good news here. Now, sin, that's a very churchy word, that's a very Christian word, and you might be non-religious, and you might not accept the position that the church holds, that we are all under sin, but here's what I want you to consider. I want you to consider whether, whether on some level you can entertain the plausibility of sin. That it might actually just be the the best explanation for what you see when you look out in the world. 
and that it actually affects you personally. Try this one on for size. Do you ever feel like you're coming up short in life? Do you ever feel like you're missing the mark? I mean, who doesn't? And did you know that missing the mark is actually the basic meaning of the word sin in the Bible? That it means to miss the mark. So in the Bible, there's a verse that talks about guys slinging a stone and they could sling a stone so well they would not miss. That's the word sin. It's, it's, it's akin to when you wake up in the morning and you're so tired and you haven't had your coffee yet that when you go to pour your coffee, you just completely miss your cup. You've missed the mark. Or in basketball, you would call it an air ball. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that feeling about yourself or about some decisions you've made in your life or some of your actions that there's this sense of, oh man, I I missed the mark there or I came up short. See, whether you believe in God or not, there is some kind of standard that makes you feel like you're coming up short in life. There's some kind of standard that makes us feel like we're coming up short. And and so many of us, let's be honest, we live under the crushing weight of a looming verdict that's almost hanging over over our heads, the verdict that we're not measuring up, that we're always falling short. Here's how David Zoll puts it in his book, Seculosity. He says, we all have an inner accountant who takes copious notes on our failures. We all have an inner accountant who takes copious notes on our failures. And that inner accountant then drives us to offer our own little sacrifices, right? We work harder. We work more. We, we try to make ourselves busier or we, we give more money. We spoil our kids or we treat ourselves harshly or we try to perform religiously and rigorously. And it all boils down to some sort of guilt management system that might look different for each one of us, but some way that we try to deal with that looming verdict. We try to do more to make up for the existential inadequacy that we feel. But imagine this. What if the verdict on your life was already in? What if something has happened in history that has made the judge rule in your favor and that completely overrules the voice of that inner accountant? What if something has taken place such that the creator of the universe would look at you and see it all, see everything, all your failures, everything that you don't want anyone else to see and in spite of it all, he would say to you, The debt is paid. You are justified. You are accepted. How might that change your life? And here's what's made it all happen. Jesus has given his life. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. Jesus gave his life in our place. He's the new lamb. That's why the new lamb matters to you and to me just as much as it mattered 2,000 years ago for the church. He is the sacrifice to end 
all sacrifices. Remember that the lamb that they sacrificed at Passover needed to be without defect. Well, that was Jesus. He lived the perfect life. He lived the life we never could. And his sacrifice and his blood causes God's judgment to pass over us. And by the way, we do deserve God's judgment on our own. But the grace of God is such that God himself came to be with us to do for ourselves what we could not do, to atone, to pay the debt. That's what has brought the verdict in. Jesus himself, he himself is the gift of the new Passover, his body, his blood, his life, given. Did you notice that word in the text? Given, given for you and for me to free us from tyranny. It's incredible news. We need to receive that announcement this morning and to give him his due. Now, this gift frees us from tyranny, but that's only half the story. Because it's one thing to be freed from tyranny, uh, but we also need to know what we're freed for. It's kind of like, okay, I'm freed from slavery, now what? This is why so many convicts, when they get out of prison, feel a profound sense of lostness and hopelessness. They were in prison, they were enslaved, but it was familiar. They knew how life worked there, and all of a sudden, they're set free, they're released, and there can be this crushing sense of purposelessness because there's no positive vision of, okay, what is life for now? How do I do this now? You know, I honestly sometimes feel that. We're, we're parents of four young kids, and our life is just always wrapped up in their needs and what they need to do, that when I get a free moment, I'm like lost. Like, what do I do with myself in this half hour? I can relate on some small level. Because the tyranny we know can feel far safer than the freedom we don't. But there's good news. The new lamb also gives us a new purpose and a new mission in life. Jesus frees us for service and love. Check out verse 24. It says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And And you get the profound sense. They have totally missed what Jesus has just said to them. I mean, this is classic humanity. They're self-justifying. They're self-aggrandizing. They're craving power and greatness and then fighting over it. And they've totally missed what Jesus has just said about giving his life for them and being the new lamb. And so Jesus spells out for them a new mission and a new purpose for them of what His sacrifice means now for those who would follow him. And what it entails is an entirely redefined concept of greatness and power in an entirely new purpose. He says in verse 25, and I want to read from the message because I think Eugene Peterson paraphrases it well. He says, Kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. Jesus is telling them the world uses power and authority to dominate to throw its weight around, to get what it wants, right? 
Might is right. That's the way of the world. But you are to use power and authority to serve. You are to use power and authority to serve. And Jesus isn't asking them to do something he hasn't already done. Because it all centers on him. It all centers on Christ. Look at verse 27. He says, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? And we pause and we say, well, yeah, it's the one who's at the table, who's being served. That's what Jesus says. But then he says, but I am among you as one who serves. And I want you to see that the I here is emphatic. It is I myself. It carries the weight of the sentence. I myself am here. I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the cosmic king of the universe. And what am I doing? I am serving you. And that's the new mission. And this is how Jesus gives us a new purpose. After he frees us from tyranny, he frees us for service and love. And it's when we see what he's done for us, how he became the lamb for us and has given us the gift of himself, that we would rise to follow him, not out of religiosity, not out of trying to atone for what we've done because we can't, he already has, but as a response of thanksgiving and love to him. Because Jesus doesn't only offer us escape from tyranny. He doesn't only offer us a ticket to heaven, but he offers us a way of life now. It's the way of service and love. And by the way, this is an incredible purpose. Look at verse 29. He tells them, I am conferring on you a kingdom I'm conferring on you a kingdom and you're gonna sit with me at the head table and you're gonna, you're gonna judge. But this kingdom has a completely upside down notion of greatness and power and authority. And so what your leadership of the kingdom looks like, what your participation in my kingdom looks like now is service and self-giving love. It's following me in the way of the cross. And so he gives them power and authority, but only as he also redefines that power for them so that they won't co-opt it and use it for their own ego, to build their own little kingdoms or to start dominating others, but to serve and to love. They need to become, we all need to become selfless servants, and people who love like Jesus. And, and, and when we do, when we start to see that life of Christ being formed in us by his spirit, that's where the power of God is gonna be seen. That's where people are gonna look and say, wow, there is something different about them. They're not throwing their weight around. They're not trying to dominate. They're serving and they are motivated by a source that just can't be explained. I love how Anglican theologian Tom Smale puts it. He says, all authentically divine power is released through self-giving. All authentically divine power is released through self-giving. What the cross cross demonstrates forever is that with God, power is self-giving and self-giving is power. 
as Christ offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world in a way that neither can nor needs to be repeated. So we offer ourselves in and through him so that the benefits of his saving work may be applied to others. There's the new mission. To be the people who have been freed from tyranny, to live out lives of service and love that call other people into that freedom. That's our mission, to share Jesus, to share the new lamb, and to let his life be formed in us. Jesus gives himself to us to free us from tyranny so that we might also give ourselves in service and love to the world that he loves. I wanna share a personal story with you. Yesterday morning, I completely blew it with the kids. I completely blew it. They were fighting with each other and I, you know, I have to admit, I had a lot of gentle attempts like, guys, let's try and work this out. I was trying to be a good parent and it all came to nothing. All of my diplomatic approaches weren't working and, and I snapped. Par- parental rage happened and it was not my greatest moment. And in the aftermath of that, it was really tempting to spend the rest of my day trying to make up for it, and trying to atone for myself. Maybe I'll, I'll be really nice, or maybe I'll just stop disciplining them and just give them everything they want, right? All the toys, all the candy that they would ask for. And we feel that temptation in the midst of our days to do that, but then, I stopped to consider the fact that, hey, tomorrow morning you're preaching about the matchless grace of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice for you. And I remembered the gospel, that the new lamb is the sacrifice that just ends all sacrifices. And that enabled me to repent, to say sorry, but then to move out into my day just trusting, trusting firmly in Jesus' atoning work for me. And it was a great day. This is where the cross, this is where atonement, this is where the gift of the new lamb gets so practical for us, both in terms of the new life it gives to serve and to love, but also with how we deal with ourselves when we fail because we're often our harshest critics. I mean, so much of our religious impulse as humans is to self-flagellate, to offer penance, to make it right ourselves. And the amazing thing is, is that Jesus sits down at this table and he sits down at the table with the people who are going to abandon him. He's sitting at the table and giving himself to one who has already sold him for silver. He gives himself to sinners and he makes sinners clean. He makes sinners righteous in his righteousness. And to know that he eagerly desired to eat that meal with them just says volumes about how he might also want to share that meal with us. So if you're aware of just how far you're falling short or missing the mark in life, you're exactly the kind of person Jesus welcomes to receive his gift and to find new life in him, a life freed from the tyranny of sin and a life full of participating in his own self-giving love. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and do this in us. Would you transform and conform us 
into the image of Jesus Christ. For the glory of the Father we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.